Hello, I'm Andrew Crook, your host for this episode of On Tobal Now. I'm really looking forward to discussing a theme that impacts us all, the race to digitise, and more specifically, the battle for supremacy between the US and China in this new digital age. Whether it's artificial intelligence, machine learning, or robotics, to 5G, blockchain, cybersecurity, and intelligent automation, the world is clearly advancing from a technological perspective at a pace that we've never seen before. In fact, being a leader in these fields is the key objective behind what many have described as the so-called US-China trade war. This was the outcome of a joint study two years ago by independent think tank Eurasia Group and Von Tobel. And if we fast forward to today, there's plenty of evidence to draw the same conclusion from that report a couple of years ago. So in line with our aim in these podcasts of trying to bring a fresh perspective on timely topics, which also help shape the investment decisions that get made, we're keen to explore the latest developments and drivers in this desire for global digital supremacy. Tied to this, we're also keen to assess the implications for the world's economy and the impact on portfolios going forward. So to get a mix of insights, I'm delighted to welcome two speakers for this session. Dr. Sven Schubert, a senior investment strategist in the multi-asset boutique of Untobel Asset Management, and our guest speaker, Michael Herson, who leads Eurasia Group in China and Northeast Asia. Thanks, both of you, for joining us. Hi there. Thank you. So let's get started. Michael, you've got a unique view on some of the issues at play at the moment. So within Eurasia Group, your focus is on China and specifically the macroeconomic and financial policies, economic reforms and political developments. Plus, you're a former chief representative for the US Treasury in Beijing. So with this perspective, what do you see as fueling this digital turf war and why should it matter for investors? Well, I think there's basically two underlying themes here in terms of why so much in this rivalry is revolving around tech. I think the main aspect is that technology really is a cross-cutting issue in the U.S.-China rivalry. It is important for national security and military competition, and also, of course, for economic competition between the two countries. And it is recognized as such by both governments. And then I think a somewhat more recent spin on this is a second trend, which is that the technology rivalry is also increasingly laden with ideological issues in the relationship and some degree of ideological competition between the US and China. And you see that play out in questions like what is the role of the state in controlling the internet and access to information, or how should governments use AI and technologies like facial recognition. So as the US-China rivalry itself has heated up, these aspects that center on technology have heated up in tandem. So Sven, what's your perspective on how these trends potentially influence how investors should consider their exposure to digital and technology themes? I think I can keep my answer here relatively short and then we dig a little bit deeper um, during our conversation. I think, first of all, people want to understand the risks in uh, their portfolios. First of all, 
supply chain vulnerabilities, which kind of corporations are at risk, which kind of corporations are vulnerable to these kind of shifts, and actually regulation, example Huawei. And the second is people are looking for opportunities. So um, obviously in this kind of digital competition between the US and China, there are as well winners, which we have highlighted in our white paper. And here, countries within Latin America and even Asia may benefit. Thanks, Ven. So taking a quick step back to look at these findings from the earlier study, how have those key outcomes, as well as the different scenarios that were presented for the US-China conflict, played out? And I think we highlighted three scenarios and the least likely, which we have highlighted, was a de-escalation scenario, which uh, is based on the assumption that US and China compromise on key issues related to China's economy and reach uh, comprehensive trade agreements. This scenario would have been the most beneficial, I think, for the world economy. And I think developments since the inauguration of Biden do not really support the scenario. First official talks, for example, took place in Alaska, where the talks were as frosty as the weather over there, I would say. The second scenario is as well a less likely scenario, West Ascendant, we called it. And it's a scenario which assumes that China's influence and power is uh, rolled back by a coordinated global response. I do not see much evidence of this scenario either, to be honest. So far, we have not even seen evidence that Western countries' coordination has a top priority. Take, for example, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, which seems to have been little coordinated among allies, or the historic security pact between US, UK, and Australia, which led to the termination of a 66 billion submarine deal between France and Australia, and France was really not amused. And this brings us to the battleground clash scenario, our main uh, scenario. And many assumptions in this scenario, I think, um, become reality. Main assumptions has been that the trade truce between China and the US fails to resolve underlying issues, which leads to market segmentation. Think about uh, Huawei, for example, or the delisting of Chinese stocks from US stock exchanges. Supply chain reshufflings, US, Europe, and China are building now its own ship production facilities, uh, as most of uh, production currently takes place in Asia, South Korea, and Taiwan. But onshoring and nearshoring is a theme that affects more than just ships and uh, which benefits already today countries in Asia and Latin America. And the third point or takeaway was that we don't expect any military conflict, but we highlighted that there's a risk of an accident, which may lead to a real confrontation. And we are not clearly not there yet. But uh, Michael, you have spent so many years on the ground in China. What is your view? Did I miss anything on the current trends in the digital turf war? I think one trend Clearly, both the U.S. and China are ramping up efforts to not necessarily decouple, but to de-risk their technology sectors from each other. We see that in the dual circulation strategy that is at the heart of China's 14th five-year plan, which came out in March. And on the U.S. side, under the Biden administration, picking up from Trump, a growing effort to try to reduce supply chain vulnerabilities, much of which relate back to China. So that's number one, the de-risking trend is gathering pace. 
Number two, closely related, both governments in the US and China are ramping up and looking to evolve their industrial policy strategies, how they look to use domestic investment at home to gain an edge in this technology competition. In China, there's been a a very perceptible shift from sort of soft tech, like consumer-focused e-commerce, to hard tech, really the areas like semiconductors, for example, that Beijing views as critical in this technology competition. And in the US, there is essentially Washington is rediscovering industrial policy and looking to fund, for example, onshoring of semiconductor production in the US, as you mentioned. And you know, this is a quite interesting trend. Number three, I would say the global nature of this competition is evolving as well. You mentioned the US campaign against Huawei under the Trump administration. That was really mostly unilateral effort. It was the U.S. using export control tools against this leading Chinese technology company. Under Biden's more multilateral approach, it's really an effort to build coalitions to counter China, including the U.S. working with Europe. But as you said, this is not going to be easy. It's not clear if this will ultimately be successful. But this more multilateral approach to technology alliances is another really important trend to be watching right now. And then finally, I would just say the sensitivity around data has really increased in the US and China. And you see this, for example, in China's sensitivity about, uh, for example, Didi, the ride-sharing company that listed in the US and you know, now has been subject to cybersecurity reviews in China. There is a, a fear both in Beijing and Washington about the data that technology companies control being utilized for nefarious purposes by the other government. So that's really, I think, uh, something that's important to watch as well, because there are a lot of investment implications that flow given how many companies control user data and the role that they play in the marketplace. Thanks, Michael. There's clearly so many dynamics that yourself and Sven have covered. And a lot of this analysis clearly focuses on the US and China. But what about Europe? Where does it fit into this? And what's its role potentially in a world where the US and China are head to head on these issues? Can Europe ever even catch up? Well, it's an important point. We talk about US and China, but this is a global rivalry and it impacts so-called third countries and companies in third countries. And Europe is a great example. I think, you know, in a nutshell, Europe is in a different position. It doesn't have the same kind of homegrown technology giants that the US and China do. And, you know, I think it will be difficult to catch up if we're talking about kind of globally dominant companies, for example, e-commerce platform companies. But Europe is kind of flexing its muscles in a different way, really through regulatory power. The use of particular in the EU-wide regulations, but also country-level regulations that really look to rein in technology companies to protect consumer data. These are really going to be an important shaping force, and it's something that U.S. and Chinese and global tech companies are already having to reckon with. So you can think of Europe as flexing its regulatory muscle, even if its market size, market clout in the technology sector doesn't compare to the U.S. and China. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the impact on companies specifically, and clearly, therefore, that puts it on the radar of investors, certainly companies that span multiple economies. And Sven, what's your thought on this? Let me have a focus uh, from a top-down perspective. I think supply chain reshufflings is is probably one of the buzzwords among economists uh, these days. And the consequences are kind of shorter and more well-diversified supply chains, probably. Being dependent on production facilities in a single country or on a single corporation makes the supply chain vulnerable. And I mentioned Huawei already earlier. This also leads to market segmentation, which is actually not a positive outcome from an investor's uh, perspective in first place. If it translates into deglobalization or globalization, so stable exports to GDP growth, as I think economists would name it. And this kind of globalization or deglobalization, there is clear evidence that, that this leads to lower transfer of knowledge, innovation among countries and corporations. This in turn tends to be negative for productivity and therefore actually for asset price returns. Simple example, if a corporation is forced to change uh, suppliers for political reason, it can't be good for the product quality or may even increase the price of the product. Otherwise, the corporation would have chosen the supplier in first place. Depending on who will take the hit of the higher price, like the consumer or the producing company, the producing company might be worse off in the end, and that might have an impact on the stock price. But I would say if countries take the right policy countermeasures, the impact can be mitigated. If countries, for example, ramp up investments in infrastructure, education, basic and applied research, Productivity may actually receive the boost in the long run. And Silicon Valley uh, is maybe a good example here. Huge investments by the US during the Cold War in the mentioned sectors gave kind of birth to Silicon Valley or played a, an important role as we know Silicon Valley as of today. And I think the trade war escalation under Trump could have been such a Sputnik moment uh, for the US as huge fiscal spending programs have already been approved under, under Biden. And Innovation in form of new business models and even new trade routes uh, may evolve, making some countries actually the winners of the trade or the tech war. Vietnam is probably the showcase and uh, Latin America and Asian countries may benefit uh, even further from uh, supply chain reshufflings. But before going into detail, Michael, uh, based on such factors, does it change the lens through which investors should view China, also given the recent regulatory reforms impact on the technology sector? Well, I think your point on productivity is a really important one because it, it very much colors how we think about China. I think it's, it's uh, you know, economists are, are famous for giving kind of two-handed answers on the one hand on the other, but I think that's what we're seeing right now in uh, this question about how it's impacting China, I should point out, I'm not a real economist, but I am going to give it a two-handed answer. I think the, the plus side, if you will, is that China is clearly plowing just a lot of resources, financial resources, but also policy support into a range of sectors that are part of this competition, especially, as I mentioned what you could think of as sort of hard tech or deep tech, that's semiconductors, it's clean tech, it's biotech. 
It's some of these bleeding edge sectors like quantum computing and AI. And so that clearly will have an impact, a favorable impact on many companies and you know, will stand to help China's productivity in a number of sectors as well. I'd say that the counterpoint to this, though, is that when you are in a policy environment where the goal is, at least to some extent, to advantage domestic players over foreign companies, and again, to reduce reliance on the U.S. in critical areas of technology, I think this does potentially come at a risk to China's broad efforts to promote productivity gains, because that openness to FDI and to competition and to foreign technologies is important. So I think that, you know, this is, it's important to recognize China is in a period where its current growth model that has been built on large amounts of fixed investment and favorable demographics is hitting headwinds. And so growth is going to have to come from productivity gains. And the question I think is, does this ramped up uh, focus on innovation you know, how much does the investment side of this help in eking out those productivity gains? And then how much does the sort of domestic policy preference potentially take away from China's efforts to eke out productivity gains? But I think that's going to be a really important trend to watch and really is critical to how we think about China's growth over the next five to 10 years. I think it would be great to get Sven, your views on on other considerations and risk that investors should be incorporating when they're thinking about these investment theses. I think it would be a big mistake if uh, investors would turn its back on China on the basis of tightening regulatory screws. China and the Asian region are simply too important from an economic perspective and will probably remain an attractive region for global investors. And as we speak today, Chinese bond market integration into the global investors' portfolios is uh, kind of continuing. But market fluctuations due to regulatory interventions, um, which uh, hit the tech companies in particular, and the Chinese economic slowdown as well was one uh, contributor to the uh, equity market woes make a clear case uh, for a world well-diversified portfolio from a sector and country perspective and actually active management here. The U.S.-Chinese struggle for digital supremacy needs to be closely tracked going forward, I think, and you may need from time to time make tactical decisions here for the portfolio. But I think um, our scenario analysis played out pretty well so far. But as a famous quote is saying, forecasting is uh, very difficult, especially if it involves uh, the future. Thank you for that. I'm going to move on to a final question. Um, We've talked about various themes and therefore I'd like to understand what considerations, and this could include also supply chain issues and other implications of the pandemic, what actions investors should take now for their portfolios, given this race for digital supremacy. So Sven, maybe you could share your thoughts first and then Michael, you could follow. I think there are clear winners of these supply chain reshufflings, in particular in Asia and Latin America. And Latin America has really a lot of potential because of very weak regional infrastructure, railroad tracks, harbors, and uh, even uh, highways. And the Build Back Better World Partnership that the U.S. just started can be kind of seen as a 
answer to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, even though it's still much smaller from budget-wise. But here, if really Latin America would open up for kind of a partnership that could really unlock a lot of benefits for the region. So far, the U.S. is kind of touring in Latin America and speaking to countries. So this is something to closely watch, I think, for investors. There could be potential. And the uh, the second is from a thematic perspective, as I've mentioned, a huge infrastructure investment program. So the uh, thematic topic of infrastructure investments is probably very attractive. Thanks, Sven. I think, you know, the simple answer is, as we've been discussing, you know, I think the geopolitical aspect of this has to be factored into the investment theses. If we're talking about the tech sector in the U.S. and China and really in, in so many third countries right now. And, you know, that means two things. It means one, obviously, look at the opportunities. As we discussed, there's policy support going on in, in the U.S. and China and in Japan and Taiwan and many other economies as governments and companies look to gain an edge. But there's also the disruptive risk aspect here. And this really gets to your question about supply chains for the companies that have been spanning the U.S. and Chinese tech ecosystems it is going to get increasingly complicated to bridge these two markets. So I think both both from a positive opportunities and also a risk perspective, it really is important to factor in the geopolitics in the investment thesis. And then I would also just say, finally, it seems like an obvious point, but this is going to continue to evolve. In other words, the ground on which this geopolitics operates will shift. I mean, five years ago, I don't think we would have considered, for example, facial recognition companies as an area where the U.S. was going to impose investment restrictions and export controls on human rights concerns. But here we are. And so it is important to take a forward-looking view. For example, will biotech increasingly be a sector where the U.S. and Chinese are at loggerheads over ideological as much as technology issues? I think that forward-looking view is very important to keep in mind and to keep updating our understanding of how the politics are playing out in really tangible ways. Absolutely. There's certainly a lot of key issues and evolving dynamics that we all need to consider going forward. And thanks very much, Sven and Michael, for all these insights. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, you can follow us on LinkedIn for key updates. And we'll look forward to bringing you more podcasts on other new topics very soon. Thank you. This recording is for information purposes only, and nothing contained in this recording should constitute a solicitation or offer or recommendation to buy or sell any investment instruments, to affect any transactions, or to conclude any legal act of any kind whatsoever except as permitted under applicable copyright laws. None of this information may be reproduced, adapted, uploaded to a third party, linked to, framed, performed in public, distributed or transmitted in any form by any process without the specific written consent of Vontabel. To the maximum extent permitted by law, Vontabel will not be liable in any way for any loss or damage suffered by you through the use or access to this information or Vontabel's failure to provide this information. Our liability for negligence, breach of contract, or contravention of any law as a result of our failure to provide this information, or any part of it, 
or for any problems with this information, which cannot be lawfully excluded, is limited at our option and to the maximum extent permitted by law to resupply this information or any part of it to you, or to pay for the resupply of this information or any part of it to you. Keep in mind that past performance is not a reliable indicator of current or future performance, and forecasts are inherently limited and should not be relied upon as an indicator of future performance. Today's guest speaker is not an employee or representative of Von Tobel. The views expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views and or policies of Von Tobel.